it is so true that some of the most defining moments in the Bible and in our lives happen around food, around mealtimes, or in this case, around Welch's gummies, clearly. It's going to be uh, riveting children's time together. I hope you'll find a Bible, uh, maybe one of the pew racks, one you brought with you, one that's on your phone or your tablet, and turn to the 12th chapter of the book of Exodus. We're in the second part of this four-part sermon series on, on Exodus, uh, stepping into God's future. If you want to frame the way that Exodus is presented to us, it's about stepping into God's future, following God's lead as a new community of faith. It's a beautiful uh, image um, for God's people who have always been led by the grace of God. So last week was stepping into God's name. I am who I say that I am. I am who I will be. Step into the divine name. This week we look at the Passover and we think about stepping to the table together. Next week is the parting of the Red Sea and we step into the unknown together. And then finally, as nourishment for the journey, the fourth part of, of this series is, is that of manna and quail. God will provide all, all of the nourishment that we need for our journey together through life. So from the 12th chapter, the book of Exodus, listen for the word of the Lord. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, this month, shall mark for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell the whole congregation of Israel that on the tenth of this month they are to take a lamb for each family, a lamb for each household. If a household is too small for a whole lamb, it shall join its closest neighbor in obtaining one. The lamb shall be divided in proportion to the number of people who eat it. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a year-old male. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. You shall keep it until the 14th day of this month. Then the whole assembled congregation of Israel shall slaughter it at twilight. They shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the lamb the same night. They shall eat it roasted over the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roast it over the fire with its head its legs and inner organs. You shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning, burn it. This is how you shall eat it. Your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in a hurry. It is the Passover of the Lord. I will pass through the land of Egypt that night. I will strike down the firstborn in the land of Egypt from human to animal, and on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you live, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague shall destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This day shall be a day of remembrance for you. You shall celebrate it as a festival to the Lord. Throughout your generations, you shall observe it as a perpetual ordinance. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Uh, you have heard it said of sermons <clears throat> that they're kind of like meals you were fed growing up. You don't remember every one of them, but you know you were fed, right? You've also heard it said that a sermon should have a, a really good beginning point and an ending point, and they should be as close together as possible. You've heard that too, right? I tell you, at Emory University, there's a course for student pastors. It's called Teaching Parish. 
And those who are serving churches are in this leadership group, and regional teachers lead that. Our own Dr. Stegall led it two of my three years at Emory, and his lessons were just golden nuggets for leadership, and his humor always kept us in stitches, and he would give us quotes about preaching sermons just like the one I read you, and then he told me a story. This was for when football goes late into the night. <clears throat> he would... He would say things like, don't do like one person did in our conference and yawn in your own sermon. I hope that that doesn't happen this morning. This football went late into the early morning. I didn't stay up the whole time, by the way. Well, a sermon, it doesn't have to be like a five-course sit-down meal. It can be like a food truck or an hors d'oeuvre to get us where we need to go. But then there's some sermons preached by some preachers that stick with us forever. Do you have those sermons in mind and those preachers in mind? A Bishop Duffy sermon, maybe? My professor at Emory University, Dr. Tom Long, he preached a sermon on this text, and it was so unforgettable all these years later. He told a story about Margaret Sangster back from 1904, where she wrote a book about social etiquette and how, how one should act in public. Specifically, when it comes to mealtime, her wisdom about mealtime included things like this. Uh, do not annoy those sitting around you by drumming your fingers, laughing uproariously, or playing with your bread. Now, who does that? Do not chew on your food with your mouth open, and when you chew on your food, do not make any noises associated with the sounds of vulgarity. <laughs> As for alcoholic beverages, they are permitted when prescribed only for medicinal purposes, and when you're eating, keep your other hand quietly in your lap, your mind composed on the conversation, and let all your movements be easy and deliberate, hasty moves or a sign of a nervous disorder. <laughs> well, maybe these mealtime rules for engagement seem outdated, a little odd. But something else that's quite odd is the way that God tells the Israelite people how to eat the Passover. Did you hear it? With your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, your staff in your hand, and eat it in a hurry. It's the Passover of the Lord. Something else that's quite strange about this text is where the Passover appears in the Exodus narrative, a meal of all things. So much of life revolves around meals, not only in, in the biblical world, in the ancient world, but in our world today. A meal of all things disrupts the sequence of the ten plagues. Now, isn't that odd? There were plagues of blood and frogs and gnats and flies and a plague on the livestock, boils on humans and on animals and hail and locusts and darkness and a warning about the final plague of death. The ninth plague was one of complete darkness that would blanket Egypt for three days and it would be followed by death itself. And somewhere between darkness and death, God broke into the story and said, I have a meal I want you to share 
And here's how I want you to eat this inaugural meal. We're left wondering maybe why a meal. Well, think about it this way. We have local festivals, the Azalea Trail in, in Mobile, the, the Cahaba Lilies up around Birmingham, the Dogwood Festival in Atlanta. Uh, but, but you wait for the azaleas to, to blossom and the lilies and the dogwoods to bloom, and then you have the festival or the, the 5K or whatever associated with it. You don't have the Azalea Festival in January or the Dogwood Festival in February, but this, this Passover meal is, is different. The festival comes before the event, before the Passover even happens, God gives liturgical instructions for how to commemorate a future event that has not occurred. Odd. Many years ago, I, I sat in the pews in which you are, are sitting as a member. Susan was singing up here in the choir. I had daddy duty with the girls who were in elementary and middle school at the time, and, and something odd happened then too. Uh, during the Apostles' Creed and the Lord's Prayer, I heard a, a sound that caught my attention, and it was over the, the holy murmur of, of the rest of us, I believe in God the Father Almighty. Right. I heard the sound of two girls citing the Apostles' Creed and praying the Lord's Prayer from memory, and it was a moment of parental pride. <laughs> and then I thought, huh, those two little innocent voices declaring Trinitarian theology and leaning into a 2,000-year-old prayer. Where in the world did they learn that? It's not like we, we had Apostles' Creed sing-alongs in the carpool line, you know, or Lord's Prayer flashcards. We didn't do that. It dawned on me that they learned it from you, learned it from their church, learned it from children's church, while the Welch's gummies were working their magic. They learned it here from their family. And they learned it because liturgical language, as Dr. Long reminds us, is language held in trust for future generations. We proclaim it without fully understanding it. If you flip back in your bulletin to the call to worship, we, we prayed, O oh God of our ancestors, as we gather to break bread, we remember that through the blood of the Lamb, you redeemed us and made us pass over from death to new life. And, huh? What is that? It's language about the future. We lean into it. As often as we eat this meal and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. It is our future. Into what type future do we step when we come to this table? This summer, our family took a trip to Maine. It was somewhat on a whim. I talked to several friends, and Maine is not a place we had ever explored um, lobster season had just come in, so check, right? Low humidity, check, 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 yes. We stayed within a few hundred yards of Walker's Point, the home of the Bush family, 
and even took communion at St. Anne's Episcopal Church with George and Laura and Jeb and his family. They all say howdy, by the way. It was something. Typical fashion for me, I took advantage of the early mornings to begin exploring the Kinnebunk area, jogging through the gardens, breathing in the salty air, stopping to watch the bees and the butterflies dance upon the blossoming flower beds, and then marveling at the unique architecture of so many historic houses. And, and that's when I noticed something odd. A few chimneys, white painted chimneys, and they had a black painted band around the chimneys. And so I stopped my run and asked a local if, if that black band and that white chimney was the equivalent of two our old Cloverdale historic markers here, you know. And, oh, yes, she said, those chimneys are historic indeed, and they will stay that way forever. You see, during the time of the Underground Railroad, slaves who escaped captivity would look for the black-banded chimneys, and they knew that it was a place of refuge until they could find a permanent place of, of safety. And then I remembered reading about Harriet Tubman. She was from Maryland, not too far from there. She was an escaped slave herself, and she devoted the rest of her life to helping her brothers and sisters find their freedom. Uh, she would write letters back to the farms, back to the illiterate, the illiterate slaves using words that were coded kind of like liturgical language. You tell my friends that I send my love, and when the old ship Zion comes, step on board. She would sing the old Methodist hymn, I'll meet you in the morning, I'm headed for the promised land. Or she'd stand in the dense woods on the other side of a river and sing like Tyrone did last week, go down Moses, down to Egypt land, tell old Pharaoh, let my people go. And that that was a coded liturgical language, and they moved toward that language and their freedom. Or like next week, you'll hear it right here, wait in the water. When they heard that call, they knew it was time for freedom. The freedom was coming. The freedom was on the horizon. They knew to keep their belt fastened sandals on their feet, their staff in their hand. The Lord was coming and will pass over those marked with the blood of the Lamb and deliver those ready to step into the future, to break the chains of captivity, to overcome all that plagues us. Now, we may feel like we're not captive, but we are. Every one of us here is held captive by something, by, by fear, by anger, by jealousy, uh, inhibitions of, of self and self-worth, or inhibitions about our neighbor, or issues with, with shame and guilt, or whatever it is that the world gives us, plagues us with, that cuts us off from the grace of God. We all have an Egypt, and we all need a promised future. That's why uh, Walter Brueggemann says, if you've got time for your bread to rise, you've gotten too comfortable in your Egypt. Hello. That's why Karl Barth said, grace is the enemy of everything. It comes to proclaim a perpetual revelation. And when the revelation of God happens, the self we so dearly love turns out to uh, not be the self that God loves. And the justice we have tried to gain for ourselves turns out not to be the justice that God loves. And the neighbor we have ignored turns out to be the neighbor God loves deeply. God breaks into our Egypts and sets us free. 
So we step to the table with our belts fastened, our sandals on our feet, our staff in our hand, expecting God to do something amazing. We mark our doorposts to signal outwardly to the world that darkness and death do not get the final word, that somewhere between darkness and death, God intervened with a meal to rescue. And it was that same meal that Jesus took and said, I have, I'm paraphrasing, I have so wanted to eat this meal with you guys. God is providing a way. We let the doorposts of our hearts, this meal of promise, signal an alternative narrative to the world that whatever plagues it is not final. There's always hope. In a few weeks, our United Women in Faith will host the annual Fall Bazaar, and I saw a recent uh, image of mums that may be purchased. Mums, I think they'll be in the north parking lot. Will somebody nod to that? I think they'll be in, the, yes, thank you, Linda. Mums, a portion of those proceeds will go to Reality and Truth Ministries. You, you've heard us mention that uh, ministry before. You've seen it in print occasionally through a donation, and some of you have helped LaDonna Brindle serve the homeless community. Uh, but did you know there's a, there's a better, a deeper story, rather, that happened around 15 years ago when God gave LaDonna a vision. She's an accountant by trade. She lived here in Cloverdale, and she felt a calling to step into the, the Egypt of hunger in our city. And so she quit her job and downsized life and went into as many Egypts as she could to let God's people go from the captivity of hunger. And I ran across a story our staff has visited Reality and Truth. I encourage you, your Sunday school class, your family to do the same thing, to get to know LaDonna and that ministry as one of our, our community partners. But there's a story about Nicole, who, um, who was a, a single mom, and she had several children and was homeless uh, a while back. Homeless, uh, social services rather, had to take custody of her children, and the family was, was ripped apart, and she, Nicole was, was devastated, and she, by her own admission, said she wanted to die. But LaDonna would not give up on Nicole. LaDonna proclaimed a Passover on Nicole's life as plague after plague pounded this family, but God kept saying, you keep yourself ready. This Egypt will not last. Eventually, reality and truth, LaDonna, they helped Nicole get on her feet and find a place of, to live and to be reunited with her, her children. I couldn't help but think that, that death passed over Nicole and her family who were delivered from that Egypt. And sort of humorously, it was Nicole who said of LaDonna, this lady just won't give up. <laughs> and I thought, my Lord, the Exodus story is happening in our city. In LaDonna's own words, we all need a little help no matter who we are. I think to date, reality and truth is they're building on Montgomery Street. Where they're feeding about 100 people per day. They've got housing and, and showers and women's services. I don't know if they have a white chimney with a black painted band. People know that as a place of refuge along their journey to healing and to wholeness. I don't know if they sing those old Methodist hymns or if the doorpost are marked, but I, I can see it from here that they are. That God is breaking into some Egypts in our city to provide hopes and dreams. So what we get to do today is step to this table with our belts fastened and our sandals on our feet and staff in our hands 
and we eat it in a hurry because God is providing a way into the next chapter of our story, and God is calling us into the Egypts around us to set people free. We all need a little help no matter who we are, and we all can be a little help too no matter who we are. So let's step to the table together. God will meet us here. Amen.